Chapters 36 to 39 of Book 9 of History of Animals by Aristotle. Translated by Darcy Wentworth Thompson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 36. Of hawks, the strongest is the buzzard. The next in point of courage is the merlin, and the circus ranks third. Other diverse kinds are the asterius, the pigeon hawk, and the paternus. The broader-winged hawk is called the half-buzzard. Others go by the name of hobby-hawk, or sparrow-hawk, or smooth-feathered, or toad-catcher. Birds of this latter species find their food with very little difficulty, and flutter along the ground. Some say that there are ten species of hawks, all differing from one another. One hawk, they say, will strike and grab the pigeon as it rests on the ground, but never touch it while it is in flight. Another hawk attacks the pigeon when it is perched upon a tree or any elevation, but never touches it when it is on the ground or on the wing. Other hawks attack their prey only when it is on the wing. They say that pigeons can distinguish the various species, so that when a hawk is an assailant, if it be one that attacks its prey when the prey is on the wing, the pigeon will sit still. If it be one that attacks sitting prey, the pigeon will rise up and fly away. In Thrace, in the district sometimes called that of Cadripolis, men hunt for little birds in the marshes with the aid of hawks. The men, with sticks in their hands, go beating at the reeds and brushwood to frighten the birds out and the hawks show themselves overhead and frighten them down. The men then strike them with their sticks and capture them. They give a portion of their booty to the hawks, that is, they throw some of the birds up in the air, and the hawks catch them. In the neighborhood of Lake Myotis, it is said, wolves act in concert with the fishermen, and if the fishermen decline to share with them, they tear their nets in pieces as they lie drying on the shore of the lake. 37. So much for the habits of birds. In marine creatures also, one may observe many ingenious devices adapted to the circumstances of their lives. For the accounts commonly given of the so-called fishing frog are quite true, as are also those given of the torpedo. The fishing frog has a set of filaments that project in front of its eyes. They are long and thin like hairs, and are round at the tips. They lie on either side and are used as baits. Accordingly, when the animal stirs up a place full of sand and mud and conceals itself therein, it raises the filaments, and when the little fish strike against them, it draws them in underneath into its mouth. The torpedo narcotizes the creatures that it wants to catch, overpowering them by the power of shock that is resident in its body, and feeds upon them. It also hides in the sand and mud, and catches all the creatures that swim in its way, and come under its narcotizing influence. This phenomenon has been actually observed in operation. The stingray also conceals itself, but not exactly in the same way. That the creatures get their living by this means is obvious from the fact that whereas they are peculiarly inactive, 
they are often caught with mullets in their interior, the swiftest of fishes. Furthermore, the fishing frog is unusually thin when he is caught after losing the tips of his filaments, and the torpedo is known to cause a numbness even in human beings. Again, the hake, the ray, the flatfish and the angelfish burrow in the sand, and after concealing themselves angle with the filaments on their mouths, that fishermen call their fishing rods, and the little creatures on which they feed swim up to the filaments, taking them for bits of seaweed, such as they feed upon. Wherever an antheus fish is seen, there will be no dangerous creatures in the vicinity, and sponge-divers will dive in security, and they call these signal-fishes holy fish. It is a sort of perpetual coincidence, like the fact that wherever snails are present you may be sure there is neither pig nor partridge in the neighbourhood, for both pig and partridge eat up the snails. The sea serpent resembles the conger in colour and shape, but is of lesser bulk, and more rapid in its movements. If it be caught and thrown away, it will bore a hole with its snout and burrow rapidly in the sand. Its snout, by the way, is sharper than that of ordinary serpents. The so-called sea scolopendra, after swallowing the hook, turns itself inside out until it ejects it, and then it again turns itself outside in. The sea scolopendra, like the land scolopendra, will come to a savoury bait. The creature does not bite with its teeth, but stings by contact with its entire body, like the so-called sea-nettle. The so-called fox-shark, when it finds it has swallowed the hook, tries to get rid of it as the scolopendra does, but not in the same way. In other words, it runs up the fishing line and bites it off short. It is caught in some districts in deep and rapid waters with night lines. The bonitos swarm together when they espy a dangerous creature, and the largest of them swim round it, and if it touches one of the shoal they try to repel it. They have strong teeth. Amongst other large fish, a lamia shark, after falling in amongst a shoal, has been seen to be covered with wounds. Of river fish, the male of the sheet fish is remarkably attentive to the young. The female, after parturition, goes away. The male stays and keeps on guard where the spawn is most abundant, contenting himself with keeping off all other little fishes that might steal the spawn or fry and this he does for forty or fifty days until the young are sufficiently grown to make away from the other fishes for themselves. The fisherman can tell where he is on guard, for in warding off the little fishes he makes a rush in the water and gives utterance to a kind of muttering noise. He is so earnest in the performance of his parental duties that the fisherman at times if the eggs be attached to the roots of water plants deep in the water, drag them into as shallow a place as possible. The male fish will still keep by the young, and if it so happen, will be caught by the hook when snapping at the little fish that come by. If, however, 
he be sensible by experience of the danger of the hook, he will still keep by his charge, and with his extremely strong teeth will bite the hook in pieces. All fishes, both those that wander about and those that are stationary, occupy the districts where they were born or a very similar places, for their natural food is found there. Carnivorous fish wander most, and all fish are carnivorous with the exception of a few, such as the mullet, the salp, the red mullet, and the calcus. The so-called pholus gives out a mucus discharge which envelops the creature in a kind of nest. Of shellfish and fish that are finless, the scallop moves with greatest force and to the greatest distance, impelled along by some internal energy. The murex or purple fish and others that resemble it move hardly at all. Out of the lagoon of Pira, all the fishes swim in winter time, except the sea gudgeon. They swim out owing to the cold, for the narrow waters are colder than the outer sea, and on the return of the early summer they all swim back again. In the lagoon no scarus is found, nor thrita, nor any other species of the spiny fish, no spotted dogfish, no spiny dogfish, no sea crawfish, no octopus, either of the common or the musky kinds, and certain other fish are also absent. But of fish that are found in the lagoon, the white gudgeon is not a marine fish. Of fishes, the oviparous are in their prime in the early summer until the spawning time, the viviparous in the autumn, as is also the case with the mullet, the red mullet, and all such fish. In the neighborhood of Lesbos, the fishes of the outer sea or of the lagoon bring forth their eggs or young in the lagoon. Sexual union takes place in the autumn and parturition in the spring. With fishes of the cartilaginous kind, the males and females swarm together in the autumn for the sake of sexual union. In the early summer they come swimming in and keep apart until after parturition. The two sexes are often taken linked together in sexual union. Of mollusks, the sepia is the most cunning and is the only species that employs its dark liquid for the sake of concealment as well as from fear. The octopus and calamary make the discharge solely from fear. These creatures never discharge the pigment in its entirety, and after a discharge the pigment accumulates again. The sepia, as has been said, often uses its coloring pigment for concealment. It shows itself in front of the pigment and then retreats back into it. It also hunts, with its long tentacles, not only little fishes, but oftentimes even mullets. The octopus is a stupid creature, for it will approach a man's hand if it be lowered in the water. But it is neat and thrifty in its habits. That is, it lays up stores in its nest, and, after eating up all that is eatable, it ejects the shells and sheaths of crabs and shellfish, and the skeletons of little fishes. It seeks its prey by so changing its color as to render it like the color of the stones adjacent to it. 
it does so also when alarmed. By some, the sepia is said to perform the same trick, that is, they say it can change its color so as to make it resemble the color of its habitat. The only fish that can do this is the angelfish, that is, it can change its color like the octopus. The octopus, as a rule, does not live the year out. It has a natural tendency to run off into liquid, for, if beaten and squeezed, it keeps losing substance and at last disappears. The female, after parturition, is peculiarly subject to this colliquefaction. It becomes stupid. If tossed about by waves, it submits impassively. A man, if he dived, could catch it with the hand. It gets covered over with slime and makes no effort to catch its wanted prey. The male becomes leathery and clammy. As a proof that they do not live into a second year, there is the fact that, after the birth of the little octopuses in the late summer or beginning of autumn, it is seldom that a large-sized octopus is visible, whereas a little before this time of year the creature is at its largest. After the eggs are laid, they say that both the male and the female grow so old and feeble that they are preyed upon by little fish and with ease dragged from their holes, and that this could not have been done previously. They say also that this is not the case with the small and young octopus, but that the young creature is much stronger than the grown-up one. Neither does the sepia live into a second year. The octopus is the only mollusk that ventures on to dry land. It walks by preference on rough ground, it is firm all over when you squeeze it, excepting in the neck. So much for the mollusca. It is also said that they make a thin, rough shell about them, like a hard sheath, and that this is made larger and larger as the animal grows larger, and that it comes out of the sheath as though out of a den or dwelling place. The nautilus, or argonaut, is a pulp or octopus, but one peculiar both in its nature and its habits. It rises up from deep water and swims on the surface. It rises with its shell downturned in order that it may rise the more easily and swim with it empty, but after reaching the surface it shifts the position of the shell. In between its feelers it has a certain amount of web growth, resembling the substance between the toes of web-footed birds, only that with these latter the substance is thick, while with the nautilus it is thin and like a spider's web. It uses this structure when a breeze is blowing, for a sail, and lets down some of its feelers alongside as rudder oars. If it be frightened, it fills its shell with water and sinks. With regard to the mode of generation and the growth of the shell, knowledge from observation is not yet satisfactory. The shell, however, does not appear to be there from the beginning, but to grow in their case as in that of other shellfish. Neither is it ascertained for certain whether the animal can live when stripped of the shell. 38. Of all insects, one may also say of all living creatures, 
the most industrious are the ant, the bee, the hornet, the wasp, and in point of fact all creatures akin to these. Of spiders, some are more skillful and more resourceful than others. The way in which ants work is open to ordinary observation. How they all march one after the other when they are engaged in putting away and storing up their food. All this may be seen, for they carry on their work even during bright moonlight nights. 39. Of spiders and phalangia there are many species. Of the venomous phalangia there are two, one that resembles the so-called wolf spider, small, speckled, and tapering to a point. It moves with leaps, from which habit it is nicknamed the flea. The other kind is large, black in color with long front legs. It is heavy in its movements, walks slowly, is not very strong, and never leaps. Of all the other species, wherewith poison vendors supply themselves, some give a weak bite, and others never bite at all. There is another kind, comprising the so-called wolf spiders. Of these spiders, the small one weaves no web, and the large weaves a rude and poorly built one on the ground or on dry stone walls. It always builds its web over hollow places, inside of which it keeps a watch on the end threads, until some creature gets into the web and begins to struggle, when out the spider pounces. The speckled kind makes a little shabby web under trees. There is a third species of this animal, preeminently clever and artistic. It first weaves a thread, stretching to all the exterior ends of the future web. Then, from the center, which it hits upon with great accuracy, it stretches the warp. On the warp it puts what corresponds to the woof, and then weaves the whole together. It sleeps and stores its food away from the center, but it is at the center that it keeps watch for its prey. Then, when any creature touches the web and the center is set in motion, it first ties and wraps the creature round with threads until it renders it helpless, then lifts it and carries it off, and, if it happens to be hungry, sucks out the life-juices, for that is the way it feeds. But if it be not hungry, it first mends any damage done, and then hastens again to its quest of prey. If something comes, meanwhile, into the net, the spider at first makes for the center, and then goes back to its entangled prey, as from a fixed starting point. If anyone injures a portion of the web, it recommences weaving at sunrise or at sunset, because it is chiefly at these periods that creatures are caught in the web. It is the female that does the weaving and the hunting, but the male takes a share of the booty captured. Of the skillful spiders weaving a substantial web, there are two kinds, the larger and the smaller. The one has long legs and keeps watch while swinging downwards from the web. From its large size it cannot easily conceal itself, and so it keeps underneath, so that its prey may not be frightened off. 
but may strike upon the web's upper surface. The less awkwardly formed one lies in wait on the top, using a little hole for a lurking place. Spiders can spin webs from the time of their birth, not from their interior, as a superfluity or excretion, as Democritus avers, but off their body as a kind of tree bark, like the creatures that shoot out with their hair, as for instance the porcupine. The creature can attack animals larger than itself and enwrap them with its threads. In other words, it will attack a small lizard, run round and draw threads about its mouth until it closes the mouth up, then it comes up and bites it. End of chapter 39